Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA Science of Agriculture podcast series. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, host of Science of Arboriculture. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. Today's lecture is by Dr. Bryant Schierenbrock. Bryant is the primary investigator at the Morton Arboretum Soil Science Laboratory in Lyle, Illinois. His research focuses on improving urban soils for landscape trees. His talk today is titled, Good Dirt, Keeping Urban Trees Healthy. This talk was originally presented at the Tree Care Update at the Philadelphia International Flower Show on March 10th, 2011. The three topics I'm going to cover are just give a brief introduction on urban soils and what they are. And then I'm going to move into some research, specifically two focus areas that we're currently um, looking into, first being uh, aerated compost teas, and the second are kind of a new, pr- new projects that are coming up and related to biochar. This presentation is on our website, www.masslaboratory.org. So most of you, are, I'm sure, are well aware that urban trees struggle, and they often struggle to live that first 10 years. So Nancy talked to you this morning about uh, trees in the nursery. I'm going to talk to you about trees once they get into the landscape, specifically what can we do for soils, what can we do to remediate them, to get them through that establishment period. And uh, a lot of the, the problems that we, ha- we've, we see with urban trees and why they don't live out their lifespans in urban situations is related to the soils. So that's what the focus will be. I use this acronym quite a bit when I'm talking about urban soils, and these are mostly Midwestern urban soils, but I think it'll give you a good sense of the problems and the issues that you see in urban systems, and I call uh, urban soils a harsh dirt, and each of those letters symbolizing some of the key things that, that stand out. They're anthropogenic, so they can be, trees in urban systems, they're, they're limited by space, so we have smaller planting spaces, there's also different things, there's different, uh, a completely different uh, microenvironment in urban system, the urban heat island all sorts of anthropogenic influences. As a result of the disturbances that we, we do to the urban soils, they're quite heterogeneous. So urban soils, there's not really a taxonomic classification right now because there's so much diversity. So that's something that really you need to, to recognize when you're, when you're working in an urban system. Our soils in Chicago area and many urban soils throughout the country are alkaline. So they have a higher pH. Um, the reasons for that are many. A lot, of the, a lot of it deals with concrete. So concrete being a weathering parent material, it's kicking a lot of calcium, magnesium, it's raising that pH. They're salty, so we use a lot of road salts in Chicago. I'm sure you guys use a lot of road salts here as well. So that, has, that results in high, sa- high saline contents in urban soils. They're hot, urban heat island. We often don't have uh, vegetative surface covers or organic covers on urban soils, so it doesn't have that microclimate buffering. And dense. Density is a huge one, and it's a lot of our focus right now in our research. So compaction from machinery, from foot traffic, from all sorts of sources, it has a, a, a lot of real negative impacts on urban soils. 
Inert refers to the interrupted organic matter cycling. We often remove the, the plant restitution pathways. We don't have leaf litter fall that you'd commonly see in a forest in an urban situation. So you, you have that, that interrupted organic matter cycling. Reduced. Reduced refers to redoxomorphic features, um, waterlogging status of soils. When soils become really wet, they move to a reduced condition. They, they, they start to smell like that, that stinky egg smell. Um, they're, they're anaerobic, and that's often the case when you have compacted urban soils, high clay contents, uh, specifically in the Midwest region. And then the last thing with urban soils is they're tainted. So there's all sorts of anthropogenic or human influences that are coming into urban systems that, that really are, are putting chemicals in, in these urban soils that could potentially be ha harmful to human health and also trees. Examples are heavy metals, the salts, there's uh, aromatic hydrocarbons that come from industrial processes that, that stay in urban soils that are particularly um, dangerous to, uh, to humans. So all sorts of reasons why urban soils are pretty challenging environments for trees. So if we were to look at an ideal soil, a good soil, just based on a volume basis, what you'd like to see is about 45% mineral components. So that's your sand, silt, and clay particles. 5% organic components, so that's the other portion of the, the solid material. And the remaining portion should be, should be filled with water and air, so the pore spaces. And ideally, you'd want about half those pore spaces filled with water. But in an urban situation, for many of those reasons I mentioned, we have a reduction in pore spaces. So when you compact an urban soil, you, you lose a lot of those macropore spaces. And when you lose the macropore spaces, that's where the, the, the aeration is. So that's why you have those waterlogging conditions. And then, as I mentioned, you have an interrupted organic matter cycling. You don't have those leaves coming to the top of the surface that are contributing to the, the, the increase of organic carbon over time. So you do see a reduction, in, in, typically, in urban soils and organic matter contents. And then those mentioned contaminants. So I'll focus a lot on soil organic matter, and it's very important. It's uh, a key characteristic when people try to identify soil quality, soil quality being physical, chemical, and biological characteristics. And organic matter has influence on all three of those realms. It has strong influence on nutrient mineralization, on cation exchange capacity. It, organic matter is a big player in, able, in being able to chelate or fix those contaminants like aromatic hydrocarbons or heavy metals within the soil. It has strong impact on physical properties like the buffering I mentioned, um, aggregate stability, the, the, the availability of water to plants and organisms. And then, of course, it has a strong influence on biological activity, microbial biomass, the activity, the, the diversity, and then also those large organisms, the, the, the ants all the way up to earthworms, even up to, to you know, larger rodents that live in the soils. So it's very important. This is uh, some research that demonstrates the importance, particularly to urban trees. So it's, it's, a, it's a figure from a meta-analysis that we did in the lab. And meta-analysis is an analysis of a whole bunch of studies. So in this, in this report, we looked at 79 different studies that were published in arboriculture and urban forestry. And we tried to quantify the impacts across those studies on, of organic materials on tree health, uh, specifically sh root growth, shoot growth, and other physiological traits, and then also soil chemical, biological, and physical characteristics. So what we do is we compute a mean response relative to a control in each one of those studies, and then we compile all the data, and we do some analyses. So we got about 79 studies, and you can see that across all of these studies, which were based on compost and mulch mostly, there was a couple other biological products, but for the, the vast majority were based on compost and mulch, that we saw nothing but positive responses when we computed our means for all those different parameters. 
And the largest responses were with organic inputs related to soil biological properties, and then secondly, root growth properties. So it has a strong influence. Organic matter is important for both soil quality and tree health. But not all organic matter is uh, created equal. And this is uh, a table of some organic or, or amendments or materials that we're using in a bunch of studies at the Arboretum and giving a little bit of their, their chemical properties, uh, specifically the carbon ratio, the nitrogen ratio and the carbon and nitrogen ratio, and then also the microbial respiration that's evolved from these different materials. And you can see that, just taking a quick look through this table, there's a broad range. The carbon-nitrogen ratio starts at 600 all the way down to, to 1 or so. And that's really important when you look at the carbon-nitrogen ratio in terms of the nutrient availability, um, nitrogen mineralization, immobilization, the nitrogen being taken back into microbes or being available for plants is dependent on that CN ratio of your organic materials. And it's, it's typically thought that when you get above ratios of 25 to 1, that's where you start to see that nitrogen immobilization, a decrease in plant-available nitrogen. So if you're looking at adding something like pine needles relative to compost, you might see an immobilization rather than a mineralization. And then you can see that the, the data that we're collecting, there's big differences in carbon respiration from those different materials. So not all organic matters are created equal, or not all amendments are created equal, and I'll talk a little bit more about two of those now. The first one being aerated compost tea. So we've done a number of studies, and I'll move right into that. This, this all came up um, through some studies uh, back in the 90s where they, they followed the, the soil um, complexity, this, the complexity of organisms within the soil themselves. And they found that as, as ecosystems progressed from grasses to shrubs to trees, the, the soil organisms also evolve in their complexity. And specifically, you get an increase in fungal organisms relative to bacterial organisms. You get an increase of those organisms that predate on fungal organisms. So it, it gets more complex as you move through ecosystem succession. And then it's proposed that when you go through and disturb a soil, like you do in an urban situation, you lose that complexity, and it moves more towards a bacterial-dominated soil, what, what it's often people call it, a soil food web. And what proponents of aerated compost tea are suggesting that you can use these compost teas to brew up the organisms you'd like to have on your, in your soils and then apply them to the soils and kind of alter or manage the soil organisms that fit the plants that you're trying to manage. So that's the whole background on it uh, and why it's kind of taken, taken, taken off. But the big problem is there's, there's virtually no... Rel no peer-reviewed scientific research on this subject, um, either on changes in soil quality or in tree health. So we have conducted a number of those studies, and that's what I'll be presenting to you. The two things that I'm going to focus on, what proponents say with compost tea, is first that you'll see an increase in uh, nutrient mineralization. And the reasoning for this, so if you're adding a bunch of predators on, of bacteria or predators of fungal organisms, and you're also adding those organisms that are going to eat those bacteria, such as protozoa, when they eat the bacteria, there's an excess of nitrogen. That nitrogen gets released in a soil solution in dissolved organic nitrogen form, which then gets mineralized into available forms like nitrate and ammonia, where plants can, plants can take up. So by adding the organisms, you're stimulating the microbial activity, and you're increasing nutrient availability. So that's the idea. It hasn't been tested, like I mentioned, so that's what we're doing. 
The other major thing that we're looking at is the impact on increasing microbial activity. Are we able to increase biological aggregation? So aggregation is the cementing of sand, silt, and clay particles together with organic matter, um, different, different little secretions and things like that, making little granular uh, pet peds within the soil. And that's really important because that's going to that's what creates your pore spaces. So without these peds or these, this granular structure, you have reduced porosity. So if we're trying to degrade a, uh, a soil that's been compacted where you've lost all that porosity, this is what you want to do. You want to stimulate the microorganisms that can do this. So the second kind of focus on our research is, is this happening with aerated compost tea? So what is aerated compost tea? So it's a uh, this is uh, one of our brewers. It's the, a 250-gallon brewer. And within this mixture, so you can see that there's, there's bubbles, so aerated, that implies that there's air. So that's very important. That's what differentiates this from other types of uh, tea leachates or where you're just putting tea in, into water and gathering the stuff, where you're putting compost into water and just gathering what's, what comes off. So air is very important. There's water in here. Then we suspend a bag of compost, and that bubbles it. And the idea is that that aeration kicks off all the organisms into the slurry. And then we add foods. So we add specific foods that stimulate or are supposed to stimulate the organisms that we want to. For trees, we want to have a lot of fungal organisms, so we add a lot of complex foods. Foods that, take, that, that, that are a little bit more difficult to, to break down. So a lot of a, a wider carbon-nitrogen ratio. And I'll talk specifically what foods we've added to our teas. So that's basically what it is. There's a whole mess of con uh, considerations when you're, you're brewing the compost teas. Um, you need compost, you need co and, I'll, and I'll go through these quickly. This is the list. You first off, you need to start with good quality compost. If you don't have good quality compost that contain the organisms that you'd like to have in your tea, you're not going to be able to get them. So quality compost, um, it should smell like mushrooms, it should be dark brown, crumbly, and it should be moist. So by moist, I mean when you squeeze it, you should have one drop of water, no more. And then lots of visible fungal hyphae. So if you want fungus, fungal organisms to put on your soils, you need to have it in your compost. And we've tested our compost that we use in our brews, and this is the, the, the results. You can see that um, in terms of qualitative standards that are put out there by the people that test this, uh, we're doing pretty well in the compost that we're using in our teas. Microbial foods. So we want to add the foods that the organisms require to increase their population. So if we want a lot of, a lot of fungus, we want to add fungal foods like humic acids, complex proteins, uh, oatmeal bran, fish hydrolysate, so things with a wide carbon-nitrogen ratio, lots of carbon relative to nitrogen. If we just want to get a whole bunch of bacteria, we can add a whole bunch of nitrogen-rich sources and we'll speed up those bacteria products. Bacteria break down things that are easy to break down. Fungal organisms break down things that are a little bit more harder to break down. We brew um, with two brewers. We use the, the GOT 250. And these are the, the specific ingredients we do with, uh, with that brewer. So when I, when I talk about the research, the field-based research, this is the, the brewer that we're using in the teas that are created from that. And then we also do a number of uh, laboratory and greenhouse stuff. And with that, we're using a smaller brewer, a five-gallon brewer. It's the KISS brewer. And these are the ingredients that we use for those brews. So this is a commercially available source. And the, the, really the goal with our research is try to limit the variability between brews. So we've stuck with the same recipe throughout all of our studies. And we monitor, I'll show you the, the, the conditions that we monitor throughout the brews to try really to, to, to have some control over this, these studies. Aeration is very important. 
and you want to keep active aeration throughout the brew, and it said that you need to stay above six part per million oxygen content. So we monitor that, and all of our brews are at above six part per million oxygen content. Typically, you'll see a, a decrease below six in this, the brews that we've been doing at about 48 hours or so. So we always collect within the first 24 hours. Temperature is very important. We want to have uh, temperatures about 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. If you get really high, you're going to increase microbial activity, and that's where you get to a point where you might go anaerobic. So it's something that you've got to kind of monitor as you're doing a brew. Water quality, you need to start with good water so you're not having a detrimental impact on the organisms you're, you're trying to brew. So we always de uh, dechlorine our, our, our water. So we just run the aeration for about 12 hours before we apply the ingredients for it so that will get rid of all the, the chlorine. We add humic acids to complex the chloramine, and then we always monitor and test the water before um, adding our, our uh, ingredients. And these are some of our test results for our water quality based on EPA standards. We're all within adequate range, so if it's good enough for humans to drink, it's good enough for the microbes. Cleanliness is a big issue, and this is a big issue specifically when you're considering different brewers. Um, ease of cleaning is huge. Climbing in this guy right here trying to clean these cracks and crevices is, is, is challenging, and it's... Um, it's, but this happens to be one of the, the better brewers out there. It's a lot of round surfaces, so you don't have those areas where biofilms can develop. So biofilms are nasty areas where you can't really get clean, and you'll, it's, it's hot spots for anaerobic, act, anaerobic activity, which is what you do not want in these teas. And then this other brewer, the, the five-gallon Kiss Brewers, is real nice, actually. It all comes apart. It's real easy to clean, and you can just brew it in a five-gallon bucket. But it's, it's a small scale for sure. Application is a consideration. You, want to, um, you don't want to be excluding the organisms you're trying to brew up in your teas, so you need to have nozzle openings that are big enough to let those organisms through. Then you don't want to cook them. Um, if you, you're putting them out in water droplets, so you don't want to be creating little water droplets that are little greenhouses out there that are going to cook the, the organisms. So there's considerations of water drop size. You want to keep it less than a millimeter or so. Um, we always avoid full sun. We try to apply in overcast conditions. Um, we do it at low pressure soil drenches. And the big thing, some of, one of our projects specifically focuses on looking at a standard application rate. Right now there's not an application rate, so um, when I talk about the greenhouse study, that was specifically looking at different rates of compost tea. But the range is anywhere from 0.25 to 100 gallons or so per thousand square feet. Monitoring, we do some pretty in-depth monitoring both during the brew process and then afterwards. So afterwards, we'll do biochemical tests. We'll look at respiration from the tea. We'll look at um, the teas under the microscope, and we'll quantify the amount of bacteria, the protozoa, the fungal organisms, nematodes, all sorts of things. And these are our test results. So, and you can see, again, we're all... According to the, those that standardize this, we're doing pretty well in all organisms, except we're kind of low on our nematodes in most of our teas. And these are means from seven brews with the GOT brewer and then eight brews with the KISS, Kiss brewer. This is uh, a graph of one of the, the brews that was just done last month on our KISS brewer. And these are the things that we monitor throughout the brew. We monitor dissolved oxygen, so this is a big one. Remember, we want to keep that above six part per million. And... Right here is starting conditions, and then five minutes into it, or the next point on that line, we're on the, the yellow here, is when we add the ingredients. And you can see dissolved oxygen stays about above six part per million all the way throughout, I think it, it crossed here at hour 55. So, and I mentioned we, t we collect all of our teas at 24 hours, so we're well above that six part per million 
um, oxygen content in our, in our teas. Um, the inside conditions in terms of temperature are a little bit different than what you'd see outside. The temperature variations are just basically what, what's going on on the inside, uh, the changing of the thermostat, really. It's not, it's not changing too much. So this is just diurnal variation here. And then we monitor electrical conductivity. So that's a measure of all the dissolved ions in solution. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Once you add the ingredients, you get a big spike, and then you get a leveling off over time. And we're, this is pretty typical. What we see is we'll see a drop in pH and then a, a gradual rise in pH. And I think what's happening is over time you got all those humic acids starting to complex some of those protons dropping the pH. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but that's the best explanation I can come up with right now. So I'll move into some of the experiments that we are performing with aerated compost teas. So we've done a couple laboratory assays, a greenhouse experiment, and a compaction plot experiment. And we're also in process of three other experiments, which I will not present results to today, but one's looking at these same sort of applications in a tree nursery setting. We're doing it in an actual urban landscape setting with established trees on a very severe site that uh, mortality rates of about 10 to 25% or so. And then we're doing some, uh, excuse me, some turf landscape experiments. We're applying teas also in, in, in contrast with uh, typically inorganic fertilizers and looking at the impacts on turf. So the first experiment, the laboratory assay, was just a simple, we have uh, compost tea at a full concentrate rate, then we have a dilution rate, then we have a traditional NPK fertilizer, a 30-10-7, and water. And we added those to two different soil types. This is a BT horizon soil, so that's lower in the profile. T corresponds to lots of clay. So this is a clay loam soil. And then we have um, a silt loam soil, an A horizon soil. And these were added to, um, treatments were added to soils in a laboratory setting. We kept it at 10 days in the dark. We optimized the, the moisture content of the soil and the temperature. And then we ran the soil chemicals the soil chemical properties, and we didn't see a lot of, lot of results, a uh, lot of uh, significant differences. The biggest difference that we saw was related to potassium content. So we saw an increase in potassium content with our, our concentrated compost tea in our A-horizon soils relative to those other treatments. And that, that's not too surprising. Uh, there's a number of studies out there that have found that compost in particular is a good source of potassium. So if, if you're leaching out the compost, you're collecting the potassium from the compost and you're adding that to, to the tea. Um, and it's, it's really not surprising that we didn't see a big increase in, chem in chemical properties because this is a really short-term 10-day laboratory assay. So it's just something we, we did to, to get an initial snapshot of what's going on. So we didn't see any changes in pH. The base cations are phosphorus. We also looked at different gross indices of microbial activity and uh, microbial biomass. So we did nitrogen mineralization with a standard incubation. We measured the respiration with these Sovita paddles. So it's a color index, and it's correlated to the amount of CO2 in a headspace. And then we measured microbial biomass by killing all the organisms pre and post um, an assessment and then measuring the dissolved organic nitrogen in those, uh, those uh, fumigants. And we found what with, in terms of microbial respiration, so these bars right here, the blue bars, are the A-horizon soils. The purple bars are the BT-horizon soils. And for those that are not familiar with statistics, if there's letters here on top of the bars, that means there's a significant main effect, so that's, that's a p-value less than 0 0.05. 
and when you have a unique letter, that means that there's a significant um, difference between that treatment compared to that treatment. Whereas here, even though there's AB here and A here, there's no really significant difference between those two treatments. So what we saw in terms of microbial respiration is we saw an increase in microbial respiration in the aterizing soils with the fertilizer compared to the dilute tea and the water. So we saw more respiration with the fertilizer. Um, we saw a greater microbial biomass with the fertilizer in both soil types compared to our dilute tea and our, and our concentrated tea and our water. And, I'll, and I'll, I should mention this before I go through all the data that I'm going to present. I do have some summary slides, so again, if you'd like to doze off and catch up at the end, feel free, because <laughs> I will be presenting a number of slides. Um, but I, I will, I will kind of summarize our findings across all these studies and give some conclusions. Potential nitrogen mineralization, so this is the change in available nitrogen, so the change in ammonia and nitrate over a certain amount of time at, at optimal conditions. So same story. We saw greater amounts with our fertilizer compared to our, our dilute tea and our, our water, in, in this case, in both soil types. So the next study that we performed was looking specifically at um, denitrification. So denitrification is important because N2O or, and different oxide forms of nitrogen are important greenhouse gases. They're very strong greenhouse gases relative to CO2. And when you have excess nitrogen in the soil, what will happen, especially in wet conditions, which you often see in urban conditions, is you'll get a denitrification. So nitrif the nitrification process will go backwards, basically, and you'll start producing nitrogen gases. So this can be N2, N2O, NO, and these are important. So what we did is we adjusted soils to um, high, water holding, high water holding capacity, so basically saturated conditions, which you often see in an urban situation. We looked at two soil types, and we measured the efflux of nitrogen gas from those soils with these different treatments. And we do this using a, a gas chromatograph. This first graph is the A-horizon soil. And these uh, measurements were taken at 12, 24, 48, 96, and 192 hours within, uh, in that assay. And you can see at the beginning of the experiment, at hours 12, and it kind of petered off here, but at hours 12, we had an increase in denitrification with our compost tea compared to our fertilizer and our water. water. And then, if you move throughout the experiment, you see we, uh, a greater increase, significant increase, with fertilizer compared to compost tea and water. And I should mention that this increase here is of a much greater magnitude. So in terms of the nitrogen gases that are being involved, that's probably a more ecologically important um, realm compared to this significant difference that was observed here. So what I think was happening here is with compost teas, you have a higher carbon content. Carbon is also one of the limitations on denitrification. So you're seeing a pulse of denitrification, a pulse of those, that nitrous oxide flux because you're also adding carbon. And then later in the experiment, it gets limited by the nitrogen supply. And you can see from our other, other uh, graphs that you are getting more nitrogen in fertilizer relative to compost tea. So that increase in nitrogen, available nitrogen, really stimulated that later and more, more larger magnitude nitrous oxide efflux. Same, same sort of story, only a little bit less, uh, a little bit less of an impact with the BT horizon soil. So the BT horizon soil has uh, significantly lower carbon content, so, which is why we, I think we see uh, a greater change with our compost tea in the beginning of the experiment. So we saw a pulse of that carbon, which stimulated denitrification, but then just le a, less, a lesser supply of nitrogen because the A horizon relative to the BT horizon soil has a bunch of nitrogen in it as well. 
So we didn't see a lot of significant differences as we move further out in the experiment. Next experiment is um, looking at different application rates. So we wanted to kind of hone in on what sort of rates should we, if, if ACT does work, what sort of rates should we apply in it uh, on the landscape. So we looked at two different trees. We looked at oak and, and maples and three different soil types. We did a sand, we did a silt loam, and we did a compacted silt loam. And we did five different treatments. And you can see the, the rates that we use starting at zero all the way up to 50 gallons per thousand square feet. And we applied these teas monthly over two years. We measured things in the laboratory, oh, in situ measurements. So we also measured surface carbon efflux. We did, a, in this study, we did a sodium hydroxide trap method. So that reacts with the CO2. And then we use acid-based titration, which one of the volunteers is doing right here, to determine the amount of CO2 in that headspace. And what we found was uh, not a lot of significant effects once we looked at the, the, the teas applied to the soil. If we look at the teas themselves, you can see as you increase in concentration, you're getting greater microbial respiration. So that's kind of what we'd expect, nothing surprising there. But then when those teas are applied to soils, the only response we saw in the soils was with this compacted loam treatment, where we did see at our highest rate a significantly greater amount of microbial respiration. No differences here in sand, no differences here in loam. So in our very severe soils, it's, it appears that our highest uh, application rate might have a, an increase in microbial activity. We also measure leaf greenness. So we use a SPAD meter, which gives you relative chlorophyll content. The idea is that the greener the leaves are, the, the more photosynthesis that's going on, so the healthier the, the trees are. So, and and we, you, we do this. It's, it's not as good as a LICOR measurement or such, but it's, it's cheap and easy to do, so we, we do it. And we didn't see any changes in, in either species with any of the, the tea concentrations. And these are, we, we did this measurement uh, eight times over two seasons. So it's, it's pretty strong evidence showing that we're not getting changes in leaf color with, with the rates of compost tea that we applied. This experiment just concluded, and we're just wrapping up the data on root biomass, so I'll present one figure on that. Um, so after, after the two years, we destructively sampled, we took and we shake, shook off all the soil, then we snipped the roots at the, the, the collar, and we were doing shoot biomass and root biomass on all those microcosms. And similar to what we saw in microbial respiration, we didn't see any treatment responses with the sand nor the loam, but we did see with our highest concentrate uh, greater, significantly greater root biomass. So that's a good thing. So it's suggesting that, that, that we are maybe at that higher concentration where we are able to increase microbial activity, and maybe that does translate into increased uh, root biomass. We also were concerned with, we're adding a whole bunch of dissolved organic nitrogen, essentially, with, with compost teas. And like any other nutrient you're adding to, to a system that's not well buffered, there's a potential that it can be lost from the system. So we looked at potential nutrient leaching. So we leached these microcosms periodically throughout the two years. We captured that leachate, and then we ran it on our IC in the laboratory for anions. Anions, we looked at anions because these are the most leachable, the most mobile with, through soil. So things like phosphates, sulfates, nitrates, chloride, bromide. Um, I'll just present nitrate, but the same sort of story held true for all those anions. We saw a significant greater with our compact loam treatment. Again, we'll start there. Um, actually, an opposite trend here. As we moved up in concentration, it, it looked like a decrease in potential nitrate leaching. So I'll get back to what I think that was happening. This is what I expected to happen on the loam here. As we moved up in concentration, you have more available dissolved organic nitrogen being mineralized into nitrate, um, probably in excess of what the plant requires and a potential for leaching. So what I think is happening in this soil goes back to our denitrification study. 
at our highest rates, the, the, these microcosms, it's a compacted loam, and they're very, very poorly drained. So standing water throughout the two-year study, for quite often, um, they, they weren't well drained at all. So that's a highly denitrifying environment. So it's likely, we didn't measure this on these microcosms, but it's likely that there was a lot of nitrous oxide efflux from that. So we're adding a lot of nitrogen, or more nitrogen in our compost teas, which is the case as we move up here, there's greater potential for denitrification. So I, I don't think that this is necessarily reflecting changes in, in nutrient leaching. I think it's actually showing a change in denitrification. So we're going to do some further studies on that. But I think it reinforces what we saw in our, our laboratory assay on denitrification. And then no changes with our sand microcosm. So I'll talk now a little bit about one of our, our more long-standing experiments. And this is an experiment that I started with Gary Watson actually before I got to the Arboretum in 2007. So what we did is we scraped off the topsoil, um, we compacted the subsoil, and we compacted the subsoil to a density um, I think this is about 1 point, it varies across the plot, of course, but about well, 1.5 to 1.7 or so grams per cubic centimeter. So it's, it's pretty severe compacted. And this is from a pit that was just dug last fall. So this, that's uh, three years after the initial compaction. And this is hard as a rock. And this is the compacted layer that, that we created. And um, characterizing that using soil taxonomy, you'd call that nothing but massive, a very um, large root restriction layer. So we did, have a, 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 we did a good job of compacting the soil. Um, so on this plot, then we, might, we planted 120 trees. We looked at maple and birch, and they're set on, five, on 15 center plots, and we're applying different treatments. So we've been applying water, we've been applying uh, MPK fertilizer, compost teas. We use a, a commercially available biological product, and then we also compare that with compost and mulch and uh, our water control, of course. And those are the rates that we would apply. And over this period of time, we've been taking soil samples twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall. And we've been doing a number of in situ measurements. We've been measuring uh, different water, um, water contents and water tensions, surface carbon efflux, and things. So I'll present some of this data now. First thing I mentioned, we're measuring plant-available water. So we're looking at volumetric water, and we measure that with uh, TDR probes. And this is a TDR probe, and this just measures the current across these probes, and that relates to the amount of water in the soil. And then we also measure, um, there's a buried tensimeter right here, and that measures soil tension. So how tightly soil holds, so uh, water is held within the soil. And it's the balance of those two, volumetric water and soil tension, that determines plant-available water. And... You can see pretty strong evidence. So with mulch, you have uh, greater volumetric water. So nothing too surprising there. You have a buffer layer, the, the greatest buffer layer, and that prevents evapotranspiration from water leaving from the soil. So you have, at every point we measured, you significantly greater water with our mulch plots compared to any other plots and no other differences through other, the other treatments. And then if you look at tension, so how tightly that water is held within the soil, same story. Significantly less soil tension. So the combination of volumetric water and lower soil tension, you have greater uh, plant-available water with mulch compared to other treatments. We did soil chemical properties, um, the ones, same ones I've discussed before, and a couple more. And these are uh, means of, so far, three sample dates. We have three more sample dates to analyze, and so these are kind of running means, preliminary data. And what we've seen so far is if we look at pH, we see significantly lower mulch 
uh, pH with mulch compared to our fertilizer and our composts. And this is important because, you know, urban soils, I mentioned in the beginning, typically have a higher pH. So one of the goals when you're applying these amendments is typically to lower the pH and make, um, put, put, be in a range where most nutrients are available, which would be 6 to 7-ish. Same sort of story um, with, with uh, potassium, where we see greater potassium with compost. I mentioned that many other people have found that an increase in potassium with compost. And we're not seeing that with the tea, but we are seeing that with, with the compost itself. So that's, that's kind of what I expected going into this. And then greater um, available forms of nitrogen. Nitrate, uh, dissolved organic nitrogen, which will eventually be mineralized into those plant available forms with uh, mulch compared to our other treatments. We looked at some biological properties again. We looked at surface carbon efflux, so, and we did this with the sodium hydroxide trap again. And we, in this case, we are seeing um, a, redu a reduction in surface carbon efflux with mulch compared to our other treatments. So I, I'm explaining this right now. Um, we're still collecting the data and, and figuring out what's going on here exactly. But I think that the, the, the amount of water that's in the, these mulch plots is so much that we're seeing a reduction. That, that's the impact on the, the reduced microbial activity. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, there's also, we're, we're putting these collars on, you know, a mulch surface relative to a turf surface. So there, there, there's also some respiration of the plants themselves, too, that's probably likely interfering. So I'm not sure how good of a measure this is really giving us. So we're going to compare this with our, our laboratory assessments of, of carbon respiration as well, too. We're seeing in terms of microbial biomass, we're seeing a reduction of microbial biomass with our mulch compared to some of our other treatments. So this is, this is why I think that the, the, there's so much water available, so much water in these soils that it's actually reducing the biological activity. They are starting to become anaerobic. They're starting to take that, that grayish color, and they are quite smelly. So we're going to do some um, actual bacteria and, and fungal characterizations using some PCR techniques to see which organisms are are, are occurring in these different treatments. And if you start to see a lot of anaerobic organisms, that could explain what's going on here in terms of microbial biomass with our mulch. Potential nitrogen mineralization, we're seeing an increase. So we saw an increase in those available forms of nitrogen. So uh, you'd expect to see an increase in our potential nitrogen mineralization with our mulch compared to our, our other treatments. Um, and also, likewise, with the fertilizer, seeing an increase in potential nitrogen mineralization compared to our, our null or our water control and some of the other treatments. We again do potential nutrient leaching, and this time we, we bury soil water samplers, so it's a tube about this big, and it's got a porous cup, and we can put a tension on it, and it'll pull water into the tube, and then we can take those leachates and analyze them on the IC for, uh, for nutrients, and specifically, again, the anions. And right here, fertilizer. So you have a lot of, you're putting a lot of um, more readily available ammonia, nitrate in fertilizers on these soils. So you kind of expect that you're going to have a lot more of this in the soil. And then when rain comes and pushes those through, which is what we do basically with our soil water sampler, you're going to see a lot more of that with the fertilizer compared to our other treatments, which are more slow-release forms of nitrogen. We're starting our, our, our tree assessments. We'll be wrapping this up. Um, this, this coming spring and fall, but this is some preliminary data that I can present on diameter, chlorophyll content, and leaf nitrogen content. Um, diameter, so what we did is we measured the diameter at the start of the experiment, again, every year, and this is the percent relative change per tree from 2010 to 2008. And 
um, mulch being the greatest diameter change, and this is both species, so there was no significant species by treatment impact, so we're able to combine the effects of both species here in our, in our model here. So significantly greater diameter increase with our mulch compared to our null treatment, our tea treatment, and that biological product, and then no differences here between these two, nor differences here between those treatments. So in general, it's telling us mulch, you get greater diameters. Um, relative chlorophyll content in the field, so this is that leaf greenness measure again, and we're seeing significantly greener leaves with our compost, our fertilizer, our mulch treatments compared to our other treatments. And then leaf nitrogen content, so greener leaves would ideally, would probably have more, greater nitrogen content, uh, but we're not seeing that in, in the lab results so far that, that we've tested. We're not seeing any significant differences in leaf nitrogen content across these treatments. So, I'll summarize those results quickly. So in terms of soil properties across these three studies and a couple other studies that I did not present on, if it's a red bar that's compost tea compared to a different treatment, a red bar is usually, a, it's not as strong an impact or it's, it's, it's not responding well compared to a green bar where it's out competing. So if we look at things like soil moisture, compost tea does not do as well in, in increasing plant available moisture as mulch. And really, there's no difference that we saw uh, compost tea versus fertilizer versus water versus compost or biological. Those different soil chemical properties, there's not a lot of changes other than potassium, really, when you look at compost tea. Um, soil chemical properties excluding potassium and nitrogen, I should say. N compost tea, we are seeing an increase in potassium content when we compare it to water. Um, it's not as great as increase when you're comparing it against compost. Nitrate and uh, dissolved organic nitrogen, forms of nitrogen that are re mostly readily available, um, not, as, not as large of an increase as you would see with mulch. And likewise with nitrogen mineralization and the different biological parameters that we measured, um, microbial respiration, microbial biomass, it tends to fall somewhere between mulch but greater than water, somewhere close to fertilizer, I think is, is fair to say. Tree properties, we're not seeing a lot of changes with compost tea in our tree properties or a lot of improvements other than root biomass at our highest concentration rate that we observed in our greenhouse study. So I think one of our more telling um, response parameters will be coming in the spring when we dig up those trees uh, on the compaction plot and we measure root biomass because that's a four-year study in, in, a, in a kind of degraded environment. So I'm excited to present that and take a look at what's going on there. And then environmental properties like denitrification and nitrate leaching. So we're seeing, I think, less of a, a magnitude of, denit of denitrification with uh, compost tea relative to fertilizer. Um, and we're seeing greater than water. So it's, it's kind of what I expected. You are adding a nitrogen source. So you'd expect some of that it's going it's to lose in gaseous form. And some of that is going to be lost in, in leaching form. So what we're, what we're finding, I think, um, in summary, is kind of that ACT is, is having some of the effects that, that proponents have put forth. It's, but they're not as dramatic as, as some of the claims on anecdotal trials have been out there. So I think it's similar in a lot of aspects to a, a fertilizer. Um, it seems to be all competing water, but it's, if you can mulch and apply compost, that's what you should be doing, I think. But, so it, it might have some application in turf settings. Um, if you're going to be applying it, you need to be applying at a concentrated rate. Uh, we're not finding any, diff our, I think our greenhouse study really showed that. You're not seeing any improvements if you're, if you're putting down dilutions. You need to be applying at, at 50 gallons per thousand square feet, so uh, higher rates. 
And then there's also some economic considerations you need to, to take if you're going to go to a compost tea program. The initial brewer investment can be 100 bucks or so for that 5-gallon brewer up to $4,000 for the, the GOT five, uh, 250. Um, you have to invest in that monitoring equipment. You've got to buy a DO meter. You've got to buy you know, some temperature probes. You've got you to buy those things that can measure that, and that's really dependent on how much you want to invest in there. And then there's ingredients. On average, for our 250-gallon brewer, we probably spend about $20, $20 per brew. There's costs. Um, you're, running, you're running that brewer um, for 24 hours minimum. So there's energy-related costs, and then there's gas that you, know, you need to, to apply that. A lot of the equipment from a traditional fertilizer program can be adapted to apply compost teas, and that's actually what we've been doing in, in our lab. But you need, you, you need labor to brew, apply, and then clean the equipment. Cleaning is, is a big consideration, and it does take a substantial amount of time. So I'll quickly move into the next portion, and I won't have any results to present, but I'll mention it, um, biochar. So that's the, the next thing we're really looking at. And biochar has been popularized lately because of this, this investigation of soils down in the Amazon region. And what they've done is they've, done, they, they've taken around, they've dug some pits, and they found these really dark, deep uh, black soils, and they've been called terra preta de angel, and that stands in Portuguese, black soils of the Indians. And with these black soils, they found clay pot, broken chunks of clay pots, uh, trash piles. So they associated them with uh, settle, little settlizations of the indigenous people. And they buried their trash there, and they, they burned their trash. So, and they've, what they've found is the fertility on these sites is outstanding. And this is centuries after these people were here. So there's a movement towards what's called biochar. And what biochar is basically charcoal that has, that has characteristics that make it a suitable or beneficial as a soil amendment. And how people are making biochar is through a process called pyrolysis. So you're basically baking organic materials. And I say baking because you're excluding oxygen. So you're not letting them combust. You are combusting the oils and the gases, but you're, you're keeping a lot of that structural carbon, that plant carbon which is very important because that has a very high absorption capacity and it has a very long residence time in the soil. So it doesn't inc it's, not, it's not mineral coil, it's not ash, it does have a portion of it that is ash. Um, it's considered quite sustainable for three reasons. Um, the big increases um, we're seeing in agriculture primarily in terms of soil fertility. It has a large uh, potential to sequester carbon because it has a very long residence time the carbon that you're, ca you're, you're creating from this, this pyrolysis process is really recalcitrant, so it's really hard for microbes to break down. So it's kind of like a, a carbon framework that you're adding to the soil. And through the process of pyrolysis, you can capture those syngases and create bioenergy from it. So in all, some estimates that are out there by Johannes Lehman, um, an article he published in Nature, that it's about 20% net, net carbon positive. And in a follow-up study that was done by Johannes Lehman and, and uh, Wolf and some other uh, researchers, they found that if they did a whole bunch of modeling um, with different scenarios of biochar creating biomass from um, creating biochar from different biomasses, and on average they can see um, about you could capture about 12% of annual anthropogenic emissions with this sort of strategy in their models they were predicting. So it can capture quite. A, it could be. It does show some promise. So characteristics of biochar, it's highly porous. I mentioned that. It has a very large surface area. And these are some SEM, scanning electron micrograph, micrograph images of it. So it has lots of places for different 
um, anions and cations to, to bind to. So it has a very high nutrient absorption capacity. It's very reactive. And one study that we're going to be looking at in some urban soils that have a, a high content of poly polyaromatic uh, hydrocarbons, which are, I mentioned those, those are some potential toxins, we were looking at, um, is biochar able to sequester them and hold them immobile in soils? It has a low bulk density, so it's something that can be added to soils to reduce the bulk density. And it contains stable carbon, so carbon that breaks down in hundreds to thousands of years. It contains unstable carbon, carbon that breaks down in years to tens of years, and ash and water. The characteristics of biochar are really dependent on the pyrolysis conditions. So the, the temperatures that you're, reading, you're reaching during the baking process and the feedstocks that you're starting with. These are three different feedstocks in the lab that we're working on right now. And you can see they're, they're substantially different. Uh, just looking at it, you can, see, you, can, you can imagine that they'll have big impacts on terms of how that's going to impact the soil physical properties. And then also uh, residence time, the amounts of uh, stable carbon and unstable carbon that would be found in these different products. We're performing a, a microcosm experiment where we're looking at char um, in comparison to other treatments like biosolids, uh, compost, mulch, fertilizers, compost teas again, and, and water. And we're looking at different species. We're looking at a number of different tree species. We're looking at turf grass. We're looking at fast plants. Right there, it's a new field, particularly in horticulture and, and brand new in arboriculture. And we're pretty excited to see what we can find out with it. So we're, doing, we're running a lot of experiments. We're doing some nursery experiments, uh, applying these same treatments in a nursery setting. Um, this, the picture right here is from the Arboretum nursery setting. We planted those trees last year, and we applied, started applying the treatments last fall. This is an image from the Bartlett Research Labs out in North Carolina. Kelby Fight, uh, Bartlett's also working with us on this project, and he's doing some similar studies on rhododendron here where he's incorporating biochar into the soils. And then this is an experiment that we'll be getting this spring. We're going to be applying biochar in a street tree setting, looking at things like I mentioned. Um, is biochar able to sequester some things like heavy metals and polyaromatic hydrocarbons? Is it in, able to improve uh, soil quality? Is it able, able to impact uh, tree health? So we're going to be looking at this in a, a pretty severe environment. This is uh, the 1,000 block to 2,000 block on North Milwaukee Street, if any of you are familiar. So... With that, I thank you all for your attention. I like I mentioned in the beginning of the talk, the, the slides are all available on our, our website, so take a look at that. Um, I want to thank Bartlett, um, both for having me out here and also for the collaborative work that we're doing together. The Tree Fund um, has been very gracious in sponsoring a lot of this research. And then all the trees, actually, that I mentioned in our microcosm studies and the field plots have been donated by J. Frank Schmidt, so we thank them. That concludes Dr. Bryant Schierenbrock's presentation titled Good Dirt, Keeping Urban Trees Healthy. If you'd like to learn more about tree roots and soils, you can find additional materials at the ISA website, including the book Up by Roots, Healthy Soils and Trees in the Built Environment, written by Jim Urban. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, you can go to the ISA website at isa-arbor.com, click on the Education and Research tab, then Online Learning and Online Quizzes. After you register for the quiz, you'll need to enter the code for this lecture, which is SA5650. Again, SA5650. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, 
please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.